Welcome to Ethics in Action, brought to you by the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dive into crucial conversations with academics and policymakers as we explore the crossroads of ethics and public affairs. Hello, everybody. This is Nir Izakovich from the Applied Ethics Center at UMass Boston. Uh, this is an episode of our uh, Ethics in Action podcast, and my guest today is my colleague and friend Dana Miranda. Hi, Dana. Hi, Nir. Uh, so Dana is uh, joining us to uh, our delight as an assistant professor this fall at the uh, uh, University of Massachusetts in Boston, and uh, he will be teaching uh, political philosophy, Africana philosophy, um, with an emphasis on uh, the relationship between philosophy uh, and psychiatry, with an emphasis on uh, uh, questions of uh, race theory and critical race theory. Dana is also a faculty fellow at the Applied Ethics Center. And uh, Dana and I, uh, some months ago, had a uh, conversation about uh, Faneuil Hall in Boston and the debate that arose here in Boston about renaming Faneuil Hall. Uh, Peter Faneuil, for whom the hall is named, made the fortune uh, which allowed him to uh, uh, dedicate and fund those buildings from the Atlantic slave trade. And um, given that this is one of the most prominent uh, tourist attractions in the country, discussions have uh, sprung up here about uh, whether its name uh, should be changed. So Dana and I had a really interesting conversation about that, that you could check out in the previous episodes of the podcast, but we both thought it would be interesting to revisit that conversation in light of uh, what's been going on the last few uh, months, uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, protest and the broadening of uh, 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 monument uh, of protests around monuments, toppling of monuments, uh, changing of monuments, defacement of monuments, the language changes, however, wh whatever stance you have on this. Um, and uh, so we thought it would be interesting to revisit that. Dana has a wonderful new piece out on the APA uh, uh, blog, Black, Black Issues uh, in Philosophy, uh, called We All Fall Down about uh, the monuments uh, debate and some of the arguments that are swirling around in that. I will link to Dana's piece on the episode's webpage so you can uh, find that and maybe some other background materials. So with that introduction, uh, Dana is wondering, um, so it does seem like it's one of those tipping point moments when it comes to uh, monuments. What was, even when we talked a few months ago about Faneuil Hall, somewhat of an academic debate became very much a uh, political debate. Uh, and I was wondering what you think, um, is there still room to have these scholarly discussions about monuments once things are actually happening? or is this a time when arguments sort of 
have become irrelevant? Well, I'd never say that arguments become irrelevant. I think they just have to be reframed in what's actually taking place on the street. Mm -hmm. um, my favorite pedagogical moment that I had as an undergraduate was with the professor who said that reality should always be your primary source. Mm -hmm. um, whatever is going on in the country, the world, um, you're living in it. So if we're going to theorize it uh, or theorize about it, we have to have that time and space. So the piece I just wrote, We All Fall Down, it took me looking at the moment, reading pieces, looking at the sites, looking at the actions, but also taking weeks at a time to try to understand and incorporate all my thoughts about, well, what is this moment? Um, what's going on in this country with the Black Lives Matter movement, with indigenous sovereignty, um, with claims of fascism um, abounding across this country or authoritarianism? And asking, well, what does this moment say and what are people doing on the ground in relation to those actions? So a lot of um, academic debates on monuments are new. Of course, as philosophy of history, historians have dealt with monuments. But looking at how history um, combines with political orders and political um, insurrections, revolutions, uprising, protests, I think that's where academics, um, historians, philosophers, political scientists can actually step in and say, hey, there's a lot of think pieces, a lot of um, claims about what's going on. Can we actually analyze it? Can we turn to other historical examples? Can we use philosophy, um, as I do, to actually break down what's going on? Yeah. So with We All Fall Down, it's about, let's look at the six grandfathers better known as um, Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. Let's look at the tumbling of Christopher Columbus statues. Let's look at Confederacy um, statues as well and saying, well, what are the distinctions? Are there any distinctions? Um, are protesters being indiscriminate when they're attacking these monuments or do they actually have cause and reason? And I think a lot of people um, at this moment, so in 2020, do think that there's a problem with Confederacy monuments. They're more willing to take those down but they also have a firm line in the ground saying that we're arguing against the Confederacy. That is a racist institution. That's the slaveholding institution and not really holding a light or a candle to the United States as a whole. So I think for me, at least that's what I wanted to do. Like, let's see their actions. Let's not just think they're indiscriminate. Um, I think they're actually having cause and there's a purpose. So I just wanted to uh, untangle that lesson. Hmm. That's really interesting. So is, is part of what you're saying that being able to feel outrage at a monument of uh, uh, Robert E. Lee or what have you uh, gives you a moral pass, if uh, you want to call it that, from uh, looking at more structural questions? Well, I wouldn't say it gives you a moral pass. I just think uh, <laughs> a lot of people... You have one, right? Yes. Um, it's that having one. Um, it's the performance of it. And again, performativity doesn't mean that it's meaningless or false. It's just, this is what I can do in place of larger structural change. Mm -hmm. So if you tackle Robert E., uh, the Robert E. Ge Lee general statue, again, the Confederacy, the traitor, like there's enough arguments in place that people can say that it's racist and say we should take it down because it's racist. But then when it comes to other statues, then again, you have the slippery slope argument. You have historical erasure, judging people by the standards of their time. Yeah. And really, if you're making distinctions, 
if George Washington had slaves, Thomas Jefferson had slaves, and Robert E. Lee had slaves, then what people do is they enter into a quagmire. Um, they want to say, well, it's racism plus treason in the Confederacy that's wrong, whereas it's racism enslavement, but he also did a lot of great things for this country, um, that people try to make that line of demarcation. And with a lot of protesters on the street, they don't want to make that demarcation um, because they're saying a lot of the issues with these founding fathers or other individuals are their racism. That's been wiped from our public memory or um, public education. It's a footnote. And a lot of Black and Indigenous people, people of color, in the, you want to say, these are more foundational issues that have been ignored, that have been erased. So we're going to do something about it. And then we can, of course, talk about tactics. Right. Um, I guess in this context, to some extent, your um, really interesting point about the Confederate statues as an opportunity for virtue signaling, but also that allows people to stay away from uh, the far deeper structural questions. I mean, that raises a critique of uh, this focus on monuments that says, look, this to some extent is a black herring, is, is a red herring that uh, uh, distracts our attention from other things, right? That distracts our attention uh, from um, more meaningful, more uh, questions. What's, um, what's your sense of that criticism that in some sense we're potentially wasting political and intellectual energy these questions where uh, we could find uh, perhaps areas of practical agreement uh, and make more progress. So I'm sympathetic to the arguments. I understand where they're coming from. Again, calling monuments or statues cosmetic, symbolic, um, I think erases their deep connections to actual political structure. So when we ask the question, whether in a philosophy class or actually on the street, what is a political structure? What actually structures our publics? I think monuments and statues have always played a part in not only in the United States, but in all polity. Um, there's a famous quote that says, statues are a way of the state speaking to you. And for me, that official narratives do have purchase. Um, are important and I think are not merely symbolic or red herrings that there are multiple political projects. We don't only have to have one to solve the issue of racism or settler colonial. There's no one political project that can do that. So for people that have to live or cross by that statue every day, if that they want to see it removed, amended, I think that they should have the opportunity um, to do so. So for me, again, I, these are common arguments um, that we can't devote ourselves to these issues because there are more important structural issues. For my reading, they are part of the structures. Um, governments, municipalities, the federal government all have to, again, invest in these statutes. They may be donated by the Daughters of the Confederacy, but how are they maintained? Those are state and federal funds. And even we know with um, President Trump's um, recent, well, recent executive order on monuments, he's using that protection order to say, um, my federal troops, my border patrol can go into states to protect monuments. So this is the state directly telling you, the federal government directly telling you, monuments are important, 
particular, of course, particular monuments uh, are important. And we can use state and federal resources to imprison people, to arrest people, um, to go into a city without the permission of the mayor, without the permission of the governor, to enforce order. And I think once you see these clear examples, you see that the state is investing in this. So for me, I read it as part of the structure. It's not merely cosmetic, even though, of course, all monuments have aesthetic features. Yeah, yeah, and no, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. You say the state is investing in this because on its side of the government, or the federal government, we should say, is investing in this because from its side of the government, these monuments have a sort of psychological shortcut effect. They have the sort of emotive impact that allows to distill um, a complicated argument into uh, a symbol, right? Into a psychological uh, uh, symbol. And that is politically powerful. I, I guess your argument is, what's the reason for giving up the other, for giving up using the same strategy for, uh, for the more virtuous political purpose, right? I mean, in some way, it um, reminds me of uh, uh, when Martin Luther King speaks about the propaganda of peace, that you can't sort of give up uh, all emotive strategies uh, to the other side. Does that... Does that resonate as a parallel? Yeah. Um, going back to the my brief talk about tactics, if we're looking at the present day and depending on how you view the political order in the United States, if you think there are elements of racism that still need to be overturned or uprooted, then why give up any sort of tactic or um, action that can get you there? So there's been a lot of talk about, well, what do we do if we topple a monument? Do we replace it with monuments towards Black people, Indigenous people? Again, these are all part of the questions. There's no one right answer. I think each community has to decide what they want to do with each monument. But I don't think we should get out of the monument game. Because again, throughout history, monuments serve an important part of broadcasting, well, what is our political community actually about? What narratives do we tell of ourselves? So people can read histories, they can read poetry, um, they can read um, a lot of information um, or state histories, federal histories, but I think monuments are a tangible, concrete, um, public, very public way of broadcasting those narratives. And I think our communities can still make use of that because for me, the monuments can be very beautiful. They can be very moving. They're not just racist. They're not just problematic. It's not only the state. These are actually um public actions that i don't think or at least me personally i don't want to see them go away yeah um so this actually brings us to make explicit uh a point that you uh make in uh, the piece we all fall down um basically just restating what you just said you say that monuments uh, are a statement of power in the public square that require a uh, public or political investment to uh, be maintained. So the point is, uh, I take it uh, that part of the function of a uh, Mount Rushmore or part of the, f or, or, or part of the function of a, um, a General Lee statue in Richmond is to say, this is what we're about. 
this is who's on top and who's on bottom. Uh, it's important for us to broadcast this. Maybe in the beginning you notice it explicitly and then it becomes part of the background, but even as part of the background that continues to broadcast. And we are going to pay money to keep it clean because it doesn't stay clean by itself. We're gonna pay money to uh, keep it uh, not rusty because uh, otherwise it oxidizes and we're gonna pay money to protect it if you're gonna uh, try to threaten it. Um, so is that, in, you, in your reading, um, is that a key function of monuments? So I think it's a key function of monuments in the sense that it's part of the narrative of um, creating permanence. That once we have a monument down, when we're setting something in stone or stale or glass, we think, oh, 10 years, that statue has been there, 20 years, 30, 100 years, that same statue or monument has been there. Um, and so we think this is a permanent feature. My grandkids, my great grandkids, if everything goes well in the world, of course, can still see that same monument, that same statue that I saw as a child. And so this creates the illusion that these are permanent relics, that they're broadcasting permanent histories, that they're broadcasting um, what's permanent and important in our history. But as we know, once we look at the history or look at the finances, um, the state decisions about, well, how much they're paying to maintain these monuments or the federal government, how much they're doing to clean these billions of dollars worth of damage to make these monuments look unblemished, like they were never touched by human hand or by history outside of their sculpture. Then we see, well, let's look at the six grandfathers um, or Mount Rushmore. Again, this isn't a permanent feature of the United States or Turtle Island or the Americas. This was a willful construction that took a bunch of years and is relatively young. Um, but because we grew up, um, or I grew up in the time when Mount Rushmore was already constructed, you might have this sense of permanence that has always been there and will always be there. So for certain monuments, we have this perception that we can't, as long as we maintain it, then this permanent narrative, this permanent history can last throughout time. And so I think with monuments, you can see how people relate to history. Do we think of history as something flexible, as something that also needs to take present considerations into account? Or is it only one historical narrative that shouldn't be tested at all? So recent histories have uncovered and um, uncovered more history regarding Thomas Jefferson or George Washington, whether their relationship with African-Americans or indigenous people. Do we want to include those histories? Do we want to amend those histories? Or do we want to say, well, that was just a footnote. And I think the way a lot of people approach monuments, um, for instance, in Christopher Columbus in Boston, who was decapitated. Well, did Christopher Columbus discover America? Well, modern historians will say this is uh, no. Or they'll use equivocation like, this is still an important discovery for Europe or for um, Spain. But they don't really want to talk about Christopher Columbus and genocide. They don't want to talk about his son, Diego Colon, who the first interracial resistance with um, Black or, sorry, African and Taino people occurred um, because of his son's policies. That's never included in these same histories and the same monuments. You only get one statue or a couple statues um in one history like this is an important man for the united states and as and this is what i really think 
this investment, this investment in keeping monuments clean, um, undisturbed, unperturbed, um, completely a blank slate, as you were. Um, it's never a blank slate. There's already official narrative out there that the state and federal government education is reproducing that might not actually match up with the full history of what that person or people have done. Yeah. So actually, let's take those two examples uh, that, that you bring up uh, and run with them. So the, the six grandfathers are Mount Rushmore. Um, so that has the likenesses of Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and uh, uh, Ted Roosevelt, right? Um, and um, as I see it, there's uh, two questions. Uh, one, which is suggested by uh, the uh, appropriate name, you, uh, uh, the six grandfathers, is where it's erected. And the other has to do with who's depicted. Um, the where it's erected, you know, sort of in some way from a normative standpoint, I could say you don't move on. Maybe it doesn't even make sense to move on to discuss the uh, uh, political and normative differences between the four presidents because Lincoln is not a Jefferson in spite of uh, um, uh, the fact that something uh, can obviously be said about Lincoln as well. Uh, but this is created on indigenous land. This is created on land that was uh, uh, supposed to be a tribal land by, uh, by treaty, for example, right? Um, and yet there's no monument to that there, right? There's a monument going with what you say in the monument these presidents on this land that was promised uh, to tribal entities saying, all right, what if we promised? This is what our um, uh, declaration of uh, uh, values uh, is and essentially uh, uh, deal with it. So let's talk for a minute about those two uh, layers of that specific uh, uh, monument um, uh, through, the, through the structure that you set up for uh, in the piece. Uh, where is it and who's depicted uh, in it? So for me, when we talk about the six grandfathers and treaty law, like again, the constitution says um, the supreme law of the land are treaties. Um, our relationships with other nations, particularly indigenous nations, but as Vine Deloria Jr. states, the U.S. has a very fraught, um, complicated, and by complicated, I'm usually disingenuous, deceptive history in enforcing treaty law. Mm -hmm. So with the Sioux Nation um, in the Black Hills, because gold was um, discovered, um, because people wanted to settle on that land, it was stolen and eventually through the Supreme Court, it was discovered that yes, this was theft, um, but we don't wanna give the land back even though it's promised in the treaty so let's instead give compensation in the billions, which um, that billions today. And so the Sioux Nation has never accepted that, but a monument was still built. Um, and for me, that was also an act of defacement. Um, the Six Grandfathers was a sacred indigenous site that had um, its face, um, as we were, the face of the mountain carved into 
Um, and we have these modern depictions of president. And as you mentioned, again, Washington is very different from Jefferson, who's very different from Lincoln, who's very different from Teddy Roosevelt. But for me, when you said like the political and normative um, conversations or arguments have to take a backseat to actual treaty law. Um, like even with Trump says, we're a, uh, or Nixon, um, a lot of Republican notions that we're a land of law and order. Well, if we're taking that law dimension into account, if you're not respecting this law um, or treaty law, how can you actually live up to your own normative claim? And so for me, what can be done about the Six Grandfathers or Mount Rushmore, um, that's a decision for the Sioux Nation because it's on their land. Um, I think, again, the land should be returned. We should uphold treaty law in the United States across the world. Um, but as to my own thoughts about what should be done with the actual monument, that's not for me to say. Um, I think the Sioux Nation, again, the, I've read pieces where they've had conversations. Um, some members want to dynamite those faces off. It's their land, they can do what they want, but other people have also argued that this would be a further defacement, a further desecration of their sacred site. So I think that's, that will have a lot of internal conversations, but I don't even think we're up to that point of like actually giving land back in this country. Um, so that's at least my stance when it comes to the six grandfathers. Yeah, so the analogy would be if somebody comes over to your house, takes it away from you, builds a statue on it, uh, and then we have a refined moral debate about the aesthetics and the historicity of the statue. The willingness to have that debate is already giving up the farm in some way, right? So if we start having that debate about how accurate the statue depicts or whether we should make distinctions between the different people the statue depicts we're not having the discussion of it was illegitimate to <laughs> take away your house in the first place so to some extent there can be a problem in saying well you know you shouldn't paint with one brush because Lincoln is very different from Jefferson, who's different from Washington, and so on and so forth, because the sort of gateway question in the first place is, there's no legitimacy to putting up that monument there um, uh, in the first place. Uh, and so I think it is meaningful to point out that th those are two separate order uh, uh, questions. and. Uh, there may not be an argument for moving from the first to the other. I guess one um, one counter argument in uh, uh, recent political philosophy, uh, 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 somewhat famously uh, uh, from Jeremy Waldron uh, uh, some years ago, has been about the significance of the passage of time on these kind of uh, arrangements and the same kind of argument, for example, you know, can be taken in other contexts, Israeli context, for example, uh, from which I come, uh, it has to do with if there have been several uh, generations uh, that have uh, grown up and created a life around uh, historical disposition or dispossession, I'm sorry, uh, the passage of time itself and the interests created around the passage of time 
weaken the original claim, right? So um, I think I think Waldron's essay is called "Superseding Historical Injustices." Um, but so let's take that in the context of the six grandfathers uh, 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 slash Mount Rushmore. What about that argument that at what point do current interests that have sprung out, uh, that have sprung around, I'm sorry, an original act of injustice come to have their own status such that you can't say anymore, this was taken away, you know, X number of decades or centuries ago, therefore we must return it uh, and not speak about anything else. I think a lot of those arguments justify, um, and they may not do so willingly, like it's an intentional side effect. They justify a lot of settler projects. Um, but for me, again, if we're going back to the Six Grandfathers, um, its existence hasn't been erased. The Sioux Nation is not suddenly wiped out. There are living generations of people that still have a relationship to that land and that want it back. And so even though we can say South Dakota, North Dakota, um, Black Hills, we can narrow it down and say, of course, these are states in our popular imaginary. These are the United States. These are two of our states. The Black Hills, um, Mount Rushmore are, are in the United States. Um, there are people that visited, Americans, tourists have visited, and see beauty in that monument. Um, think of it as vastly important, created historical connections, historical narratives that tie them to the land, to the country, and to those figures. But for me, again, people still exist. And I think your analogy points to that. If someone stole my land or my house and put a statue on it, and I'm arguing throughout my life that I want my land back, I want my house back, and you're saying, look at that pretty statue, we're never giving it back. And my grandkid, or sorry, my child, still wants that land back. I think we need to take that into account. And we have to remember that, of course, many people, many nations, um, many communities have different relationships towards history and time. Um, for people that supremely value their connections to the ancestors, um, the importance of time is actually backward. It's not the present day in our relationship to history and time that are more important. It's our ancestors that come first. And so if we want our relations to the land return, um, if our ancestors did, that could be also a way of honoring our ancestors. Um, not, not giving up these claims and saying, what does change is that how we relate to these new people. So if we're talking about the Black Hills, and my normative argument is that they should be returned, how the Sioux Nation relates to United States citizen becomes a new question. It could be a political normative question, um, but I think that's the question a lot of people are avoiding. Um, because they don't want to have those conversations. It's much easier to say that my historical connections are more important than your claims because they exist in the past without realizing that the people you're talking to also exist in the present and they're the one making claims at you. Yeah, and it's I think that's very, very well said. And it's especially interesting to note if you refuse to return something nation because there's a statue on it that has a different status that has a different status from you refusing to return something to the Sioux Nation because it has towns and villages on it mm -hmm. right so and 
obviously there's an argument in both cases, but it's one thing to say present interests intercede and weaken historical interests because a present complicated form of life has sprung up. Let's talk about compensation rather than physical return, right? And you can have the debate forwards and backwards. But if you say, you know what, our present interest is that there's a statue there. And because there's a statue there, we're not going to restore this land to living, breathing people with a uh, network of connection to the area. That is a much more significant sort of uh, uh, expression of contempt than if you're saying, well, we need to balance your historical connection to the present actual form of life that has sprung up here. Again, in both cases, you're talking about historical injustices that need to be redressed, but refusing to redress a historical injustice in the name of a piece of stone, in the end of the day, even a symbolic piece of stone, is kind of like you say in the piece uh, uh, on the blog, signaling that the piece of stone matters to you more than, in this case, actual living, breathing, indigenous lives. And if you want to use a different example, um, where protests are still ongoing, they're more prevalent in 2019, but again, in the Hawaiian kingdom, or what we call Hawaii, the 50th US state, um, at Mauna Kea, a sacred mountain site, indigenous or Kanaka Maoli people um, have argued that this land, we don't want any more telescopes actually built on our land. They desecrations of our sacred site. And so they protested the building of a new telescope. And so you had a lot of astronomers, astrologers, not all, but a lot argue that these telescopes will allow us to see, um, collect more scientific knowledge that is beneficial for all of humanity. And so again, present scientific interests were weighed against a, a supposed historical claim, but the Hawaiian kingdom was internationally recognized. Um, even the Supreme Court said, yeah, this was a coup, basically. A white settler coup took over this land, but I think when we use those historical arguments, say the present considerations take um, precedence, I think it just, again, creates situations where we can't actually really talk about the Hawaiian kingdom. We can't have an honest conversation about, well, should the land be returned? Should the Hawaiian kingdom be restored? Or should the Kanaka Maoli people, even though a lot of United States citizens live there, should they actually have a conversation of what they want to do with their own land? Um, so I think in the United States, especially when we say the present takes place or takes precedent over history, we're forgetting that we have historical connections and a lot of the people we're placing in the past, again, exist in the present and are making modern claims as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me uh, take you back to uh, your mentioning of the Columbus uh, uh, statue uh, in Boston's uh, uh, North End. Uh, so the Columbus statue in Boston was recently uh, decapitated. It uh, started a, a, a discussion of what should be done with it. I think, uh, I think it was ultimately uh, uh, removed by the city. 
but um, so in the piece you write about um, this idea of uh, uh, pristine monuments, of how uh, the uh, aesthetic uh, sustained monuments is that they have to be uh, uh, completely uh, uh, pristine and preserved. I just want to read this short passage from your piece. Um, you're right in the middle of the piece, a monument is typically deemed unspoiled when it is free of any unofficial markers or symbols. What's implied here in such an assessment is that an unblemished monument is more valuable or truthful. However, it is not the case that white monuments too often uh, circumvent complicated histories by avoiding the sordid details involved with their figures or their erection. If this is the case, one can only understand the basement by interrogating how the inclusion of historical facts spoil one's appearance. Here I would argue street historians, artists, and activists instead reveal histories in their practices. So the, in other words, if I'm understanding this, there is something in the unblemished monument that obviously hides the fact that the history uh, that's being discussed is anything but unblemished, blemished. And if I'm reading you here correctly, this is not so much a case for um, monument removal as for, uh, for lack of better word, playing with monuments, recontextualizing monuments. Uh, so, you know, one kind of tongue-in-cheek proposal, which I actually thought was very good around the uh, Columbus Monument is the, in the North End, is preserve it with its head off. Just keep it there, you know, decapitate it, because in some way that introduces a much more complicated, uh, at the very least complicated discussion and invites a more, you know, complicated discussion uh, into that context. If uh, uh, 50, 40, 30 years from now, you're there with your grandkid, as you were saying uh, earlier, they would say, Grandpa, why is this dude's head cut off? And, you know, that can start a conversation. So, are you more sympathetic to, I know it's case by case, but what's your sense of removal versus recontextualizing? So, for me, um, when we're talking about case by case, for me, it's never the philosopher, never the academic making pronouncements of what should be done with the monuments, but what do people do with monuments and what does that community want done? So I do love your idea about a decapitated Columbus statue and the conversations that would provoke. Um, I don't know what that community or what community we're actually talking about, even though like I was born in Boston, about what in the North, I wasn't born in the North End, I don't really have connections, so what do people in that community um, want with that statue? And what do people um, who disagree and protest and decapitated that statue want? Or the indigenous people of Massachusetts? And so I think these conversations haven't really been had. Um, there's no real venue for people in this country to talk about monuments. Usually monuments are either donated and they get approval by the state or federal government um it's never it's hardly ever sorry it's hardly ever people actually coming together and creating their own monument um and so for me when we're talking about playing with monuments removal versus amending it um i think for me there are direct cases where some monuments can't be recuperated that that public that community 
does not want a Robert E. Lee general statue, no matter how much you play with it. Um, and so for me, if that is the community's demand and their wants, then we can find another place to house that monument. Um, there are many places that we can house that monument. Um, so although I really like your idea, if the community doesn't want that, I think we should be respectful in saying not all things need to be played with um, when they have such visceral reactions for people who live with the daily reality. Because most often, it's not a particular one statue that is deemed very problematic, that is deemed very hurtful. Um, some people can have those visceral reactions walking across that monument. Um, but on the whole, people are arguing about what that history, what that monument represents and its deeper connections to um, political or moral issues. So Christopher Columbus, it's indigenous erasure, it's um, genocide. These are the stories not being told in the celebration of the settling of the United States. And I think that's where the decapitation actually comes from. And so once we understand that, if the US is still a settler colonial country, if it still isn't upholding treaty laws, if there are still issues with federal recognition versus state recognition that tribes have to go through, um, maybe they still don't want, no matter how playful, um, no matter how decapitated, no matter what conversation it provokes, that statue of Christopher Columbus on their land, um, on their occupied land. And so for me, just because I have those considerations into account, um, I'm always cautious of giving pronouncements about what particular um, action I want for a month. Um, it's really, for me, that community basis that's super complicated that know that that it, it takes a lot of work to get through, um, to go through, but I think those are honest dialogues. I think they bring up and reveal more history. Even the fact that Columbus was decapitated makes us talk about it, it makes people in Boston talk about it. And so I think we already played with it. Um, we can play with it more, of course, um, but I think it reveals a lot. And that's what I really meant with defacement. Um, whether it's through graffiti, whether it's through physical destruction, whether it's through the, the toppling. Some people have hung monuments. Um, others have thrown monuments in the sea in the UK. Um, I think these are actions that help us say, well, why are they targeting that monument when I think of Columbus in this way? I think of Jefferson in this way or George Washington. Um, once defacement actually comes into play, when people, again, deface or vandalize, use graffiti, I think they're actually revealing histories um, rather than just spoiling the appearance of a physical object. They're actually, again, still playing with it. Yeah. I mean, going back to the beginning of our conversation about the tipping point, seems to me that part of what's going on in the strengthening wave of monument removal and so on is the fact that what used to be more and more sort of controversial history is becoming less and less controversial. So some deeply problematic aspects of our history are, as it were, surfacing to the fore. And more and more people are willing to say, yes, this is how this country began. Yes, these are the reverberations of those historical injustices. This is how long they've lasted. And 
as a result, there's a bit of a convergence between, there's more of a convergence between that understanding of history and the fact that people are willing to remove monuments to that history. People are saying, I'm not buying into this anymore. Screw that, right? Um, to some extent, it's, I mean, to some extent, it's a expression of confidence, of which is a strange term to use right now, I know, but of political confidence that there's a enough of a degree of political confidence in the stability of your state that you can start questioning your history. Um, but I mean, I guess my one question, I mean, you're, you're obviously right that communities have to have those discussions and there's something weird for an academic top down or academia down to say, here's what you should be doing with your monuments. The thing is communities are often spectacularly wrong. Um, and clearly it won't do to just say to a community that's convinced that Columbus is their, you know, unblemished historical hero, say, I'll remove him, he committed genocide because nobody's going to want to remove him. And that's just going to, um, that's just going to generate violence in the end, or that's just going to generate conflict. But on the other hand, just, you know, there's plenty of communities that wanted those Confederate statues up because it, you know, stood for the lost cause or, you know, whatever fraudulent and false historical narrative. So I mean, how do you take that position without stamping views that are historically unsupported, I guess? How, how, how do you balance those two? I think as an academic, I, in my own research, in my own work, I am more like, even in this piece, we all fall down, I am more blatant with my position. Um, of how I view monuments, how I view um, what I call monumental defacement. Um, I don't think it's a violent act. I think it's an act, like it can be a historical and political act um, that gives us a different relationship to our states, our nation, our political communities that I think are important. Um, but in terms of, even though that is my position, the messiness of political life is something that I don't ever want to erase. So if you, as an academic, if you do have a view of a monument, do you think it's problematic, then I think you can join other people in broadcasting that view and doing something. Again, in many states across the country with the Black Lives Matter protests, there are academics willingly and actively participating in these protests um, because they see that although they can write about it and that writing is important, it's also important to act in the world. And so for me, in terms of that academic top down, I really meant in terms of like writing. Um, I don't think, I think we all are human at the end of the day. We all are part of political communities, um, whether if you're academic or non-academic. And so when we see these monuments or statues, wherever they are, um, if we have deep disagreement, I think it, it calls on us not to broadcast or say, this is what has to be done. But again, convincing people, persuasion, um, acting collectively, working collectively to do something about the political communities we actually live in. Um, so again, I have an ambiguous reading and this position might change um, as I get more into monuments or as I get more involved with specific communities. But at the moment, I think I'm fine with that ambiguity. I'm fine with communities being wrong 
because let's say there's a, a Confederate statue um, that a majority of the community really likes, there's still that minority. Um, there's still state federal levels where, again, certain symbols aren't accepted in our countries, um, similar with Germany and Nazi memorabilia. Um, there's certain things that as a country, as a political community, we do not find acceptable. Um, I think when we're saying we're at a tipping point, I think we're at a moment where more and more people are considering, well, this symbol has been in our communities and has been acceptable for so long. Can we now begin to question it? Because again, black communities have always questioned these symbols, have always found it disagreeable. And so when more people come around, I think that's when a cold monument becomes hot. Um, that's when a monument that was seen to be unblemished, unproblematic, um, acceptable to our political communities can become contested. Um, but we have to wait for that monument to get hot. As academics, we can write pieces, we can expose and say why this monument should be hot. So I always um, advocate for that. Um, but when it comes to solutions, I think that's when we should join the messy games of politics and say, well, okay, I've written this piece, you know my position. Um, how do you view the money? What do you want done with the money? Do we want to play with it? Do we want to replace it? Um, do we want it toppled? Do we want it in the museum? Do we not? Do we want it destroyed? Again, that's where I'm less about um, proclamations and more about you just have to join the game at that point. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, one question that I know that we've discussed in the past is um, once these conversations begin, sometimes in the margins, not sometimes not in the margins, there is this risk of um, nuance and distinction getting lost. And to some extent, that is the risk of movement from academic discussion to the political uh, arena. So, you know, we talked about um, the Six Grandfathers Mount Rushmore site where there's a distinction between the different people who are depicted. And we had the argument that, well, maybe there's a problem even getting to those distinctions given where that statue was built. But moving back closer to home here in uh, Massachusetts, there was Confederate monument on George's Island. And that was a monument to, if I'm remembering correctly, um, uh, wounded POWs and uh, uh, wounded Confederate POWs who uh, uh, died in a military hospital uh, uh, on the island. Am I remembering that correctly or? Yes. Um, and as the uh, monuments debate uh, heated up, uh, that was essentially uh, boxed up and removed and uh, shipped back, uh, I think, to the Daughters of the Confederacy. Um, that seems problematic to me uh, in the sense that it fails to make a distinction between um, Confederate grunts who were POWs injured and, um, you know, a General Lee statue, uh, for example, right? Uh, there do seem, in other words, there do seem to be relevant moral distinctions that once you, I don't know, I mean, I think it's an interesting question at least to have. Uh, and I think once you move to the political arena, I mean, I think there, there was a real concern of 
not being viewed as attuned enough to the cause. Um, and therefore, I mean, and therefore the monument was removed. It was perceived, I think, politically as a hot potato. Uh, and uh, the governor or whoever didn't want to deal with it. Is that is that a risk that um, you're worried about at all? Or is that just some of the real damage of moments like this? I'd say the George's Island incident, I'm going to just call it an incident. Oh. Um, was because there weren't massive protests. Unlike Faneuil Hall, which I think it's more centrally located, it's easily accessed. A lot of people weren't traveling to George's Island right. to deface or disagree. Like most people didn't even know that monument existed. I didn't know existed until certain pieces came out. Um, and so I think you were right that the state government was like, this is a hot potato. We don't want to seem to be supporting racism, enslavement, um, the Confederacy at all. So let's ship it out. Uh, so, well, first they um, boxed it in so people can see it and then they shipped it out. Um, so I think there, there was no real political discussion because Boston, rightly or wrongly, already has a perception as being a racist city um, of high, higher incidence of racism, even though um, I think this is true of a lot of cities in the United States. And so it was an easy, again, virtual signal. Um, Getting rid of a Confederate monument, wh whether who it supported, um, whether it's Robert E. Lee or just wounded POWs, that was easy. Um, get it out of it. The, we're sorry. This is this shouldn't have been public. Um, we do not support the Confederacy at all. I think that was a very easy ask that could be accomplished quickly, and they knew it could be accomplished quickly. No. But again, that didn't really get into the nitty gritty. Where how are we making distinction? And I think a lot of people. Um, when they argue about the Confederacy of what it supported, what did ordinary, everyday grunt soldiers or people support? Um, when we're talking about the peculiar institution and slavery, how many people actually supported slavery? Were people really fighting to protect their state and their families? Were they fighting to secure slavery? Um, I think these are deeper, like people are still having these historical disagreements. And so when we're looking at monuments, since that history is, again, complicated, messy, because there are multiple sides to that story, um, I think Massachusetts just made an easier decision. It, and again, I'm, by easier, I don't mean right or wrong. I'm not making moral evaluations. I just think they made the easier decision to get a, rid of anything associated with the Confederacy. Um, but as you said, when you move into the political realm, you're not only do you encounter failures, uh, but you also encounter like the loss of nuance. So again, this is where I think academics or people that have time dedicated to it can show the distinctions, but it, that doesn't mean people on the street will necessarily listen to it. And so that's where for me, I'm fine with that messiness of political life. Like even the right thing at times, even the right distinctions at times will not be satisfied or met. Um, we can recognize that as being part of political life. Um, but as you mentioned, we can still make those distinctions. That doesn't get rid of our um, actions or capability. Yeah, absolutely. So Dana, I think we're uh, running out of time. I'll tell our uh, listeners that uh, Dana and I are um, organizing a couple of uh, workshops that will bring more voices uh, into this conversation. So uh, stay tuned for uh, more information uh, about those. And I hope you guys uh, uh, join us. Those will be uh, on Zoom and will be uh, recorded uh, as well. 
But in the meantime, Dana, thank you so much. Uh, this was really great. And I will look forward to seeing a lot more of your work on this. Thank you, Nara. I look forward to talking more and discussing more. All right. See you soon. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics.